Hello, and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, managing editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. On the 6th of December, 2023, Mia Amor Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados, spoke at an LSE public event, hosted by the International Inequalities Institute, Oxfam GB, and the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity. During the event, Prime Minister Motley quoted from a recent report from the Brattle Group, a U.S. consulting firm, which quantified the monetary value of damage from transatlantic chattel slavery. I want us to go back to the same Brattle Report, which came out in June of this year, and which informed us that on the basis of standard measurements of damage, one, the loss of life and uncompensated labor, jointly foregone earnings, two, the loss of liberty, three, personal injury, four, mental pain and anguish, five, gender-based violence, of which the whole system was premised on that. That on the basis of these standards of damage, they have come up with indicative sums as to what is the scale of the damages if we were to repair without more. And in this, the total scale attributed to Spain, $17.1 trillion. To Britain, $24 trillion. To France, $9.28 trillion. To the Netherlands, $4.886 trillion. To the US, $26.7 trillion. To Brazil, $4.4 trillion. In our own case of Barbados, the debt estimated because we were the home of modern racism. That's where it was first institutionalized, on a small rock in the middle of the Caribbean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean, 166 square miles, more or less the size of the Gaza Strip, $4.9 trillion. The Brattle Group's Report on Reparations for Transatlantic Chattel Slavery gives estimates that the reparations for the total harm from enslavement, including to those who were enslaved and to their descendants, from the 16th century to the present can be valued at over 100 trillion US dollars. In October 2023, I spoke to three of the report's authors, Dr. Coleman Baslin, Rohan Janakiraman, and Mary Olson, about their work and how it informs calls for reparations for transatlantic chattel slavery. Thanks so much for joining us in the ballpark today. So this summer, the Brattle Group published the Report on Reparations for Transatlantic Chattel Slavery in the Americas and the Caribbean. I'd like to begin by asking you to give us some background on how the report was commissioned, and also to give us a bit of a brief overview of the report and its main findings. Thank you. Sure. So the report was commissioned by the American Society of International Law. Uh, In 2021, the American Society for International Law, or abbreviated ASO, hosted an international symposium on the lawfulness of transatlantic chattel slavery. At that symposium, they found that transatlantic chattel slavery was unlawful on the basis of law 
applicable in the 18th and 19th century, specifically that transatlantic channel slavery uh, breached the normative principle of human dignity and respect for the personhood of all peoples, which had been established in various treaties in European law. And these treaties were recognized by both the U.S. and Britain, despite the fact that both were slaveholding states at the time. So the conclusion of this first symposium on the unlawfulness of transatlantic child slavery led to a decision to, to host a second symposium on the reparations due for transatlantic child slavery. In terms of our report, uh, we used economic analysis to build on a previous body of work surrounding reparations to quantify the breadth of harms that occurred during transatlantic child slavery and the continuing harm thereafter. During each of these periods, we recognize that the harm was multidimensional. So not just in terms of lost earnings, but also loss of liberty, personal injury, other forms of violence experienced. Um, we were only able to quantify a subset of these harms as economic tools that we have available to us are not appropriate to measure all categories of just mental harm and anguish. Um, in total, we, co uh, we covered seven aspects of damages um, from uh, transatlantic child slavery, those being foregone earnings, loss of liberty, personal injury, gender-based violence, uh, mental harm and anguish, and those harms occurring due to the period of enslavement. And then we also considered the post-enslavement harms of the present-day wealth disparity and payments to enslavers. Could you go into a bit more detail about the amount of reparations that you've spoken about and the numbers kind of around that as well, please? Thank you. Yeah, so in terms of the total harms, and again, we're not just looking at the US and UK, we're looking at all countries that participated in transatlantic slavery, uh, both those that were the enslaver countries and those that were harmed. Um, and when we look at this, um, from this sort of all-in perspective, we uh, come with the we are, we obtain a damages figure of either 100 trillion or 131 trillion, and those two numbers are based on different calculation methods for how we calculate certain damage categories. Um, so, if we were to just zero in, for example, in the United States, um, under one of these methods, we get a damages figure of 30 trillion. Uh, and the other, we get $37 trillion. If we were to just look at these different damages methods, the, the key point of difference between these numbers is how we're looking at the foregone earnings. So with the foregone earnings, there's a couple of ways we can look at it. Our primary method of estimation was looking at the value when it was stolen, the value of labor, when it was stolen at the time in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, and then applying it, uh, and then using interest to, uh, based on the appreciation of value of money, to get a 2020 number for what the total damages were. So that's one method. That was sort of our primary estimation method. And our secondary estimation method um, was attempting to look at the was instead of instead of using an interest rate based on the appreciation of value of money which we use for a primary method for a secondary method we used an interest rate based on the appreciation of the value of labor 
So that results in a slightly smaller estimate. So the appreciation of the value of labor estimates is what gets us to the 99 trillion, to the 100 trillion. Uh, and then if we look at it in the value of money perspective, our primary perspective, we get the 130, 131 trillion figure. So I'd like to go back a bit into the sort of the genesis and the beginnings of this report. Um, you've done an incredible amount of really robust work on this. And I'm not so aware of other work that's been done in this kind of area, at least to this sort of robust level. And I'm interested to know why now? Why haven't other universities or other institutions done this sort of work uh, in the past? You're quite right that the breadth of this analysis is somewhat unique. Um, there are many scholars who have looked at harms from uh, slavery in the UK, in the United States. They've looked at sort of trying to measure the continuing harms today or looked at the uncompensated labor of the past. Nobody has uh, taken on the question of the entire project of transatlantic chattel slavery. So the genesis that comes from the fact that the ASOL conference that established a cause of, of harm under international law was for transatlantic chattel slavery throughout the Americas and wasn't um, applied to a specific country. In the report, we go to great length to, uh, to slice up the, the analysis, uh, both to the countries where the harm occurred, but also to the colonizing countries that are on the hook for it. So it, it can, our analysis can be unpacked to talk about what the UK or the, or the US or the Netherlands harm is, but it, um, it's the first one to actually put it all together across uh, all of the colonial powers and all of their um, colonial subjects. So how have governments and states that were responsible for enslavement engaged with your report since it was published? Well, I don't think the governments have engaged that much with it yet. Uh, in the um, Caribbean nations, the report was released in Jamaica. There was a, at the, at, at the uh, University of the West Indies, uh, which was also a co-sponsor of, of the work. Uh, at that event, there was a former prime minister, and there was certainly a lot of talk about the, the government and the CARICOM committee, which is looking at reparations across the Caribbean. Um, but beyond that, uh, we, there, we haven't seen evidence of direct engagement by the government. The, the report is set up as a tool for uh, discussions within each country. As noted, that the harm by country is estimated. That harm uh, becomes an input into a discussion about reparations. It's not an uh, invoice uh, to be sent. It's uh, an understanding of the economic uh, aspect of the harm that was done so that you can start a discussion about uh, what reparative uh, justice would look like. But that, um, that discussion would happen country by country. Um, and uh, importantly, it happens with the people that are, that are harmed and that are continuing to um, suffer the harm today. So uh, the countries that have been the subject of transatlantic chattel slavery are the ones who who must create the claim um, uh, with the colonial powers. And uh, in an effort of restorative justice, negotiate what that would mean. Knowing what the harm is, is an input in that discussion, but it's not the end of the discussion. In your report, you estimate the total harm from enslavement to be between 100 and 131 trillion US dollars, with the US making up a significant share of this, 
significantly more than its own annual GDP. If there was the political will to do this, how would the US go about paying its own share of reparations? By what mechanism and over what period? Yeah, so I think seeing a figure in the hundreds of trillions can definitely induce some sort of sticker shock. Um, if we were to uh, focus on the U.S. specifically, uh, we uh, estimate a damages figure between 30 trillion or 37 trillion. And again, this again seems very high. This is roughly twice the annual GDP. But uh, if we think of it from the perspective that these calculations uh, measure a harm that was inflicted on millions of persons and sometimes entire nations, especially in the case of Haiti and Jamaica, uh, for hundreds of years. So one year's GDP, which looks at uh, the 12 months of economic output from a country, isn't the best yardstick to put our results into context. And in our report, we actually uh, compare the magnitude of our uh, reparations estimate uh, with national wealth and the cumulative GDP over the past decade, we feel that is a more appropriate yardstick for comparison. I was going to say the report also um, has calculations provided as a supplemental um, feature that uh, looks at what these payments would look like over um, longer time periods. And uh, those are again provided pool. Uh, again, this is a negotiation between uh, countries that are harmed and those that have harmed them. Uh, but as Rohan said, a harm that took centuries and centuries to accumulate is not going to be settled uh, in a year. So the notion of paying it out over several decades uh, would make sense. It also would um, probably make sense in the context of that the money being paid is not simply a check being written. It's also a question of how the money is being used. Um, and to what purposes it's being put to repair the harms, the, the ongoing harms from slavery. And just to follow up, are there any examples from history or recent history of reparations or something similar that's happened that could provide a model for providing reparations in this context? Because as you said, you know, we're talking about providing these over quite a long period of time and over what are quite large sums of money. So there might be questions over who, who is literally going to direct financial aid and what some of the kinds of mechanisms are there that we could look to in the past that could be helpful in this regard. Yeah, I can speak to that a bit. There are examples in the past of reparations being paid out to armed parties in the U.S. And so the two most famous, I believe, one of which we covered in the report, is the um, estimated $44,000 paid to victims of Japanese internment. Um, which was paid out after World War II um, for the unjust internment of Japanese Americans, largely in California. There's also the example of the Tuskegee syphilis um, study and the reparations paid out to victims of that. Both of these examples, I believe, are cash transfers. Um, and while that's one model of reparations that we, we neither in, endorse or, or deny as, as a real possibility, that's the precedent that we have in the U.S. from these two examples, although we also envision other, other modes of paying out reparations. What those look like, we think, has to be a result of a collaborative effort between the governments of the harming countries and Black Americans. In your report, you touch on how there's a legal basis for reparations for slavery in the Factory at Chorzo case from the Permanent Court of International Justice. 
Can you briefly outline how this international law case can provide guidance for individual countries and policymakers? Sure. This, this is a famous case that's uh, the basis for all economic uh, harm damages in international arbitration. And it simply states that uh, the purpose of the uh, damages estimate is to put a party into the economic position they were before the harm happened. So it's compensation that's supposed to undo the unjust act. Um, it's often applied in commercial litigations where really the only harm is an economic harm. Here, it's, uh, it's a little trickier in that um, uh, so many of the harms are, go beyond economics. Uh, some of them are obvious. Uh, you know, we estimate 800 million years of enslavement that need to be compensated for. And we can price the labor that was lost for that. And in that sense, that's a direct economic harm. That's really only one of the areas that we're looking at. When you um, get into areas like mental pain and anguish or gender-based violence, it's, uh, uh, we, we have court estimates of what economic harm should be. Um, but it's it's uh, we, we don't want to we don't want to overstate the point to say that paying somebody for those uh, that violence would undo the harm. It's really just the basis of economic compensation. And so that case emphasizes, I think, that it's the it's putting somebody in a similar economic position um, that doesn't necessarily repair all of the harms um, that have been inflicted. How does the building blocks approach you outline in your report depart from existing methodologies for quantifying the losses incurred by transatlantic chattel slavery? Sure. So we depart from the literature. Well, I, I maybe not depart. I think extend the literature, I think, in a multitude of ways. First, we employ a different method for calculating reparations. So previous papers um, estimated reparations owed. Uh, using the sale price of slaves and the income streams expected by the slave owner. And they would often also subtract the estimated cost of a slave's consumption from a slave's productivity when assessing reparations. Uh, our paper looks at it instead of from the slave owner's perspective, from the slave's perspective. We look at the market wages a slave would have earned if they were allowed to sell their labor like other freedmen. Um, and our paper doesn't include the quote-unquote upkeep costs a slave owner would have paid um, so that they're, because we feel, we see that the slave had no legal choice in the manner, in the matter. Um, and in a sense, the upkeep that a slave owner provided was so that the slave could continue to provide coerced and compensated labor. Um, so we feel that it was, we feel um, that it's most appropriate to just look at it from the perspective of lost wages as opposed to taking sale prices and then trying to estimate what they would have consumed. So that's one way we um, ex extend the literature. Another thing we do is we take a more expansive view of damages. So previous studies uh, really focused on the compensation denied to slaves during child slavery. Our study attempts to uh, focus on a broader uh, extent of harms that occurred. So again, we, in terms of heads of damages, we also have the loss of liberty, personal injury, systemic gender-based violence, um, and as, as well as other dignities. 
And it, it's, it's based on Judge Robinson's argument that any serious attempt at reparations must grapple with the full chattelization of Africans that uh, occurred under transatlantic shelter. So looking just at the lost earnings is not nearly enough. And then we also extend the um, literature by having a more expansive scope. So many of these previous studies looked at just slavery in the U.S. when the U.S. was an independent nation from 1776 to 1865. And ours looks at all countries involved in transatlantic shadow slavery for the duration of uh, transatlantic shadow slavery. So a lot of these previous studies were like looking at one country for a 90-year period, roughly. Ours is about around 30 countries, and we're looking at close to a four-century period from the inception of transatlantic shadow slavery in the early 16th century, really, um, all the way to its abolition, I believe, in the late in the late 19th century. So really, the three differences are a different method for calculating reparations, um, a more expensive view of the harms that occurred, and then a more expensive scope of what we're considering. At the end of your report, you mentioned several unquantifiable harms included by transatlantic chattel slavery, including the discrimination, stigmatization, ostracism, and other forms of othering. If these harms are not quantifiable, how should we design reparations to assuage them? Right. It's important to note that our report does make an attempt to quantify some of these harms in the pre-emancipation period, the period of enslavement. So um, we are able to quantify some harms, including mental pain and anguish, which are based on modern estimates of legal awards for pain and anguish during uh, conflict and security, as established by the United Nations Compensation Commission. Um, while that's not uh, quite apples to apples looking at uh, conflict situations and enslavement, we think it's an important proxy. Um, and for that award, we calculate about 24 trillion just for mental pain and anguish suffered by enslaved persons um, during the period of enslavement. Our post-enslavement estimation, as Rohan touched on, is based on the wealth gap, um, which we believe covers the economic harms of racism. But we recognize that it does not cover the non-economic harms, as you discussed, issues of discrimination, othering, um, stigmatization. Um, and I think what, what your question is really trying to get at isn't pain and anguish suffered by the enslaved, but how do we address the structural problems um, created by slavery in today's society? Um, and so things like police brutality, uh, differences in health outcomes, and those other problems such as discrimination and ostracization. As far as we're aware, um, there is no available data or uh, precedent in reparations literature on estimating such harms. Um, so we were not able to establish models um, covering such harms. But while we were unable to assign um, damages numbers to these harms, uh, it doesn't mean that they can't be addressed. So we encourage policymakers to engage with the harmed party being Black individuals in the Americas to understand what satisfaction on these issues looks like to them. And that might mean supporting Black communities through increased social services, um, interrogating and reshaping policing, especially in countries like the United States and Brazil, um, 
and also providing better legal protections against discrimination experienced in uh, housing, employment, and education. So I know in some places in the U.S. and elsewhere, for example, California, reparations have been starting to be discussed in some contexts. How do you think we can get to a point where reparations are talked about and discussed as a really serious possibility on the policy agenda by politicians in the mainstream? I'm talking about in elections campaigns or day-to-day on the U.S. House floor or in state legislatures. How do you see that happening and how might we get there? Well, yes, we definitely see that happening. I think the question of how do we mainstream the reparations conversation is really a question of how do we amplify the voices of activists who have been fighting for this for decades? Um, And how do we continue conversations? How do we address the sticker shock that people, um, of course, are going to see and feel when they hear numbers of hundreds of trillions? Um, You know, a decade ago, reparations was a fringe movement, um, at least in in my opinion. Um, In the U.S. context for nearly three decades, um, the reparations bill, H.R. 40, which would establish a, a commission investigating reparations. Um, it was introduced every year by uh, Representative John Connors of Michigan, um, and every year it failed. And I never heard any coverage of it until um, I was in D.C. in the summer of 2019, and everybody was electrified by Conahisi um, Coates' testimony in front of Congress. And so suddenly H.R. 40, this bill that had been around for decades, um, was something that was seriously being considered by major media outlets something that um, was being discussed by major politicians. So I think we're we're already seeing the mainstreaming of the reparations debate. Um, And the question of how we continue this, as as I addressed, um, is continuing conversations on what are these harms? How do these harms live on today? What would reparations look like to the harmed parties? Um, And of course, it's pressing our policymakers in continuing these conversations and taking them seriously. So reparations becoming something mainstream, it's, it's already happening due to the work of um, activists, politicians like um, Representative John Connors um, and academics who have been working on this since the 90s. Um, but, so the question isn't, um, how do we make it mainstream? I think it's how do we grow awareness um, and continue the mainstreaming that's already occurring. So I'd just like to pick up on your point about activists and, and politicians as well. How can activists and potentially to a different extent, politicians use data and evidence like the robust data and evidence that you've produced in your report to further the goal of achieving reparations without it being too politicized? That's a great question. Um, as you noted, what we've provided is information about what the level of harms are. <clears throat> the, um, and uh, many people do jump straight to, well, I, I can't afford that. We can't write that check today. And nobody's actually asking anybody to write that check today. This is, this is the starting point of a conversation, a political discussion about how we are going to undo the stain of slavery as it's still seen in society today. So some of, those, um, some of those discussions are going to be around, for example, uh, we mentioned health outcomes. Uh, white people in America tend to live longer. As long as that happens, 
or more famously, we've learned that the maternal uh, mortality in childbirth is higher for African-American women. Um, as long as that continues, we know that there's a harm that's continuing from our legacy of slavery in society. And so addressing things that address that will, will be the type of thing that the reparative harm will be. Whether um, that is addressed, that example is addressed through um, you know, payments to individuals or whether it's addressed through more uh, addressing equity in the healthcare system you know, is what the political debate is about. But the key uh, part of this is it's not up to us as the authors of a study on what the harms are to decide what it takes to repair those harms. It's the people affected that are, that are ex experiencing the ongoing harms that are the ones who have the claim to what, um, re what restorative justice looks like. And uh, surely, um, you know, things that can't happen don't. And so if we can't pay $30 trillion uh, in a year, we're not going to. And nobody, I think, thinks that we should. Anything that happens has, any restorative justice has to happen in a way that works um, uh, for the society. Nobody's trying to ruin American society through a reparations movement. We're trying to improve it and bring it to its uh, full realization. And another thing to jump on the political angle, I mean, Mary had mentioned the uh, reparations to uh, Japanese Americans who had suffered internment, particularly camps like Manzanar and stuff like that. Uh, it's worth noting that those reparations payments were, I believe, signed into law by President Ronald Reagan. So this, if I think this idea that this reparations is somehow very like some, I guess, would be maybe attacked to some like left-wing extreme notion. Um, seeing just from precedents of U.S. history, that that doesn't seem to be the case. So that's, I think, that's another point. I think of context. And I think our report is helpful because it it brings numbers and data into the hands of activists. This is something they can quantify. I think so often, um, I'm reminded of. Uh, Senator Mitch McConnell's comments on reparations that um, no, there isn't anybody living who's responsible for enslavement. He calls the slavery America's original sin. And so I think this framing of slavery as something that is in the past, it's a closed book. It's a horrible thing that happened and we need to move on. Um, what our report looks at is it's no, it's not in the past. People are living it today. The effects of slavery and cementing racism in the United States, um, they affect people's health, health outcomes. They affect their ability to provide for their families, to um, access housing, these basic needs. These are linked to um, slavery. So I think that our report um, could be helpful in the hands of activists in giving them ammunition um, through data. I'm really interested to know because at LSE, we do a lot of work on translating academic research and getting it to a wider audience. And you've produced a very readable report, but it's also very data heavy. Sometimes groups struggle with longer reports with lots of data, especially if they're not from an academic background, as that's not the world they live in. Are you doing anything in terms of toolkits or working directly with activists? 
Or is it more of just a case you've produced the data and it's there for anyone who's interested in it to read about it? In our normal work, uh, we tend to work in litigations and uh, our audience is a magistrate or judge or jury. um, And we are aim, our, our skills are aimed at persuading them, you know, that in that setting. It is a relatively new thing for us to have a report that uh, has a much wider audience. So talking to you today is something that's outside of the norm of what we do and is part of our effort uh, to, to let people know about this research. It, in addition to being available to talk about it in media settings, we are happy to and, are, and do engage with individuals when they reach out to us. We're happy to explain the report in a context that's useful for a given country. Uh, a lot of effort was put into our country tables. We didn't get into them as much, but uh, beyond the US and UK, as Rohan mentioned, it's about 30 different countries that we a- analyzed the harms from. Um, we, are, uh, we provide those tools to each to activists in each of those countries. And beyond that, um, we're prepared to present this work in, in other settings, um, academic or non-academic. So in your report, you've used a lot of quantifiable data, but I'd be interested to know a bit more about any type of qualitative testimony you've used from people at the time, from the enslavers and the enslaved as well. I'd like to know very briefly about that, just from a social science point of view as well. I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, I can speak to that. Um, in our gender-based violence analysis, we did a lot of reviews of testimonies, legal testimonies on uh, sexual assault and sexual violence against um, enslaved Black women and particularly enslaved Black girls. So um, a lot of the work done in gender-based violence and reparations work is uh, economic history. So um, we reviewed quite a bit of qualitative literature on um, gender-based violence um, and also quite a bit of um, court testimony on on what that looked like. I, I would add that our, our charge from ASIL was the quantum of harm. So clearly we were focused on, on what we could quantify. We are clear in noting what we can't quantify and what the limitations of our analysis are. But it's worth noting that um, we took inspiration in this, in this effort from an enslaved man uh, who was later freed named Jordan Anderson, um, who there was this beautiful letter uh, where his, uh, after he was uh, emancipated after the Civil War in the U.S., his former master wrote him and asked him to come back to the plantation and work for wages for him. And he writes a letter in response to it. Um, and I want to quote just a, a piece of it that we have in here, which is, I think, summarizes what we are trying to do is to fill out what, what Jordan Anderson uh, started. He says um, to his former master, I served you faithfully for 32 years and Mandy 20 years. At 25 a month for me and two a week for Mandy, our earnings would amount to $11,680. Add to this the interest for the time our wages have been kept back and deduct what you paid for our clothing and three doctor's visits for me and pulling a tooth for Mandy, and the balance will show what we are in justice entitled to. Please send the money to Adams Express, care of Mr. Winters in Dayton, Ohio. If you fail to pay us for faithful labors of the past, 
can we have little, we can have little faith in your promises for the future. And I think aside from his uh, excellent economics about <laughs> calculating his wages, lost wages and the interest there and so forth, uh, his point about um, trying to go forward from today, we can go forward as try to be equals and respect each other. But if we don't repair the harm that was done in the past, that going forward promise is, is a bit weak. And uh, just as he said that to his former enslaver, we hope that this analysis will, um, will help that for us today. Thanks so much for that. Before we finish, is there anything else you'd like to say about your research? I don't think it helps to get into more of the like nerdy technical stuff. But if there were things there, we're always happy to. <laughs> Sorry, may, may do. Um, I think the, the, the one point I th think we did get in there, and I think is an important aspect of this, is the, the, the core of our estimate of the time of the harms during the period of enslavement start with building a database of enslaved and their expected lifetimes. So, how, how long a free person at that time would have lived. And that's where we come up with our estimate that between the stolen labor and the stolen lives, time of life, together, uh, we start with a database that has about 800 million years of stolen life and labor. And I think it's worth pausing on that number just to recognize how significant 800 million years of life is. And when you recognize that's the scope of the harm of transatlantic chattel slavery, um, the rest of the numbers uh, don't look quite as uh, outsized. Um, and it's also uh, not just that the numbers are larger, but it's also uh, recognizing that that level of harm is done to society in societies. It's not a surprise that we're still uh, feeling effects of it today. Dr. Coleman Baslin is a principal. Rahan Jankiraman is a senior research analyst. And Mary Olson is a research analyst at the Brattle Group. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to our guests for joining us in this episode. For more information about the Phelan U.S. Center, you can go to our website at www.lse.ac.uk forward slash united hyphen states. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at LSE underscore U.S. And on Facebook, we're LSE United States. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Failing U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thank you for listening. Play ball.